WPLA Talk 1580, and we will continue uh, commencing with today, year three, uh, to do our best to um, provide a platform that uh, allows your voices uh, to be amplified, and we'll continue doing it in our own unapologetic, progressive way. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your support over these first couple of years. It's hard to believe it's uh, gone so swiftly. Two years gone already. Uh, but uh, we are excited about what is to come. I mentioned in our first hour, in case you weren't tuned in, uh, we'll uh, dig uh, more deeply into this tomorrow. But we just learned literally yesterday on Juneteenth brought some good news. I mean, Juneteenth back in the day brought good news to folk, as you'll recall. Some good news came our way yesterday. There's an independent survey that for the second consecutive year uh, has found uh, an independent survey from Eviterus has found that KBLA Talk 1580, even in its infancy, uh, just two years in, is for the second consecutive year the most trusted, the most credible, and the most reliable talk station here in Southern California. Uh, uh, that's a, that's big news and a great um, uh, deal of important news for our audience. And so you should know that when you're listening to KBLA, you're listening to the most trusted, the most credible, the most reliable talk station uh, for your interest in this city for two years running. Let me, again, unpack more of that detail tomorrow when I get more detailed about the data, but that... Uh, uh, news came to us yesterday, so we'll, again, delve into that more on tomorrow's program. Uh, in this hour, uh, why is it, uh, speaking of Juneteenth and speaking of SEIU 2015 and SEIU 721, why is it that the black working class in America is often overlooked in contemporary discourse? Where are all the, the books and the articles and the, the documentaries and televised reports about the almost uh, mythic white working class? Uh, uh, those those uh, uh, those uh, those stories are, are well known about this uh, white uh, working class, uh, while the labor and the very existence that matter for that matter of uh, of entire groups of working people, including everyday black workers, uh, always seems to get obscured. So all kinds of again articles and books about the other side, but not so much focus on the black working class. Why is that? We'll unpack it right now in this hour with award-winning historian Dr. Blair L. M. Kelly whose uh, acclaimed book, Black Folk, The Roots of the Black Working Class, is out now and covers 200 years of black working history. I'm honored to welcome. Uh, I get it. And so I'm just asking you for just to imagine with me for a moment. How might mm -hmm. how might we reframe? How might we better have a conversation about reparative justice, about reparations and take the focus, you know, off the money by expanding the conversation, by expanding our viewpoint to talk about just the human cost of this. I mean, I'm raising this because the one thing that I think that many Americans understand when they can't get to understanding anything else is the humanity argument. Um, yeah. they, that that's always, for me at least, in my conversations, a way in. At the, ultimately, what I'm trying to get you to do when you listen to my conversations is to find a way to situate your humanity in that dialogue. That's what I'm Absolutely. trying to get you to do, to situate your humanity in that conversation. And it seems to me that the conversation about reparations has taken off, you know, sort of fast and furious of late, but it's all about the money. But there's really no dialogue about the human cost. And I'm just trying to figure out if you can help me imagine out loud here in real time how we might fuse those two things together. As, as we talk about mm -hmm. reparative justice and the need to pay the black working class for the work it did, for which it was never compensated, but also to weave into that narrative the human cost. I'm just thinking out loud. You talk to me. I think, you know, I would love to see us 
begin to repair our present um, to give a living wage mm-hmm. to workers right now. Right. That's the beginning of the repair, to stop the legacy of inequity and inequality and exploitation that still continues to live on. It, it, stopping that would be huge. Mm-hmm. Making sure that people have access to homes and land right now would be enormous. But let's not even calculate the value of the lands taken and lost and stolen um, for generations. Let's, let's start right here. Uh, let's not talk about all the education that wasn't given to our children for generations where, where schooling wasn't even provided for black children mm-hmm. through the sixth grade or the eighth grade. Let's talk about making our schools whole right now. Um, that alone would begin the conversation, a, a massive investment in our, our present would make a difference and would, would move the needle. And then we can begin to talk about the past and, 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 and what has been not given, what never was acknowledged um, in these previous generations. Well, to that, to that list you just ran of education and housing, et cetera, et cetera, uh, my sense is that is ultimately how this reparations um, definition is going to be, you know, put forth. Um, mm-hmm. I think in the days ahead here in California, uh, again, and beyond, as we talk about how to define it, uh, it's not going to just be about a check. Uh, and uh, I think that the issues that you well, raise we'll now. We'll take a check, though. No, we'll take it. Oh, yeah, I, 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 I ain't going to turn one down. Trust and believe. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to turn one down. But I think the definition is going to have to be much more expansive than just a check. But I think you're right. If we could start with those things, and those those things were raised, of course, in the task force here in California, um, mm-hmm. talking about reparations, and we'll see what the legislature ultimately does. But I don't see people uh, simply writing checks. I, I think we got a better. I get it. And so I'm just asking you for just to imagine with me for a moment. How might mm-hmm. how might we reframe? How might we better have a conversation? about reparative justice, about reparations, and take the focus, you know, off the money mm-hmm. by expanding the conversation, by expanding our viewpoint to talk about just the human cost of this. I mean, I'm, I'm raising this because the one thing that I think that many Americans understand when they can't get to understanding anything else is the humanity argument. Um, yeah. they, that that's always for me, at least in my conversations, a way in at the, ultimately what I'm trying to get you to do when you listen to my conversations is to find a way to situate your humanity in that dialogue. That's what I'm Absolutely. trying to get you to do, to situate your humanity in that conversation. And it seems to me that the conversation about reparations has taken off, you know, sort of fast and furious of late, but it's all about the money. But there's really no dialogue about the human cost. And I'm just trying to figure out if you can help me imagine out loud here in real time how we might fuse those two things together. As, as we talk about mm-hmm. reparative justice and the need to pay the black working class for the work it did for which it was never compensated, but also to weave into that narrative, the human cost. I'm just thinking out loud. You talk to me. I think, you know, I would love to see us begin to repair our present um, to give a living wage Mm -hmm. to workers right now. That's the beginning of the repair to stop the legacy of inequity and inequality and exploitation that still continues to live on. It, stopping that would be huge. Mm-hmm. Making sure that people have access to homes and land right now would be enormous. But let's not even calculate the value of the lands taken and lost and stolen um, for generations. Let's let's start right here. 
Um, let's not talk about all the education that wasn't given to our children for generations where, where schooling wasn't even provided for black children mm-hmm. through the sixth grade or the eighth grade. Let's talk about making our schools whole right now. Um, that alone would begin the conversation. A, a massive investment in our, our present would make a difference and would, would move the needle. And then we can begin to talk about the past and, 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 and what has been not given, what never was acknowledged um, in these previous generations. Well, to that, to that list you just ran of education and housing, et cetera, et cetera, uh, my sense is that is ultimately how this reparations um, definition is going to be, you know, put forth. Um, mm-hmm. I think in the days ahead here in California, uh, again, and beyond, as we talk about how to define it, uh, it's not going to just be about a check. Uh, and uh, I think that the issues that you raise we'll now. We'll take a check, though. No, we'll take it. Oh, yeah, I, 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 I ain't going to turn one down. Trust and believe. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to turn one down. But I think the definition is going to have to be much more expansive than just a check. But I think you're right. If we could start with those things, and those those things were raised, of course, in the task force here in California, um, mm-hmm. talking about reparations, and we'll see what the legislature ultimately does. But I don't see people uh, simply writing checks. I, I think we got a better option, a better chance, rather, of getting some of those kinds of issues that you just raised addressed as opposed to a check. But, again, I don't think it's either or. It could be both and. Uh, we will see. I digress on that uh, on, on that for the moment. Let me let me move now. We were talking about enslavement and I wanted to follow you. Let me move now to the impact that segregation and discrimination and Jim Crow and Jane Crow had on the black working class. Talk to me about that part of the story. So we see in their generation um, the frustration of people who had upbuilt a community, had built neighborhoods, had found ways to educate themselves and their children, and yet were still confined to the same kinds of jobs. Um, we even see a de-skilling of um, black workers coming out of enslavement, you know, men who were carpenters and masons and bricklayers who in freedom weren't uh, hired at all, those jobs given uh, preferentially to, to white men. And so that is powerful um, moment of, of remembrance that the things that should have been present based on their real skills were cut off artificially because of segregation and um, the legal boundaries on black life. Mm-hmm. Um, the black working class during the era of, um, again, segregation, Jim Crow, Jane Crow, um, expanded, um, Shrunk. Give me, give me some sense. I'm, I'm just trying to get a, a, a. I'm trying to get a picture here of what the blacking, uh, working, what, what the black working class looked like during that era. So there's an expansion and a movement, right? Mm-hmm. So you see people moving out of rural countryside and into more um, small towns and cities in the south, and then eventually migrating um, in substantial numbers northward. We, um, for example, when I studied black women, I was shocked to see. Um, the numbers of domestic workers, of black, black women household workers, increased dramatically um, as they embarked on the Great Migration, moving out of agricultural work and into domestic work. Now, um, when I think of like women like my grandmother, they were seeking white-collar jobs. My, mm-hmm. my grandmother was a high school graduate from in Thomasville, North Carolina, so she wanted to be someone's secretary or a typist or work in an office. But when she migrates to Philadelphia, she serves as a live-in household worker yeah. um, and cannot raise my mother and, and can't keep her during the week. 
Um, so there's a, a frustration and a disappointment, particularly for black women sure. in this time period. When we come forward after news traffic and sports, I want to come right to that issue of the role that black women uh, have played in the uh, black working class. I also want to follow up on that, that point she makes now about migration and how these migratory patterns impacted the black working class. It's a day after Juneteenth, and we're talking about black folks, specifically the roots of the black working class with Dr. Blair L.M. Kelly on KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Tavis Smiley. Glad to have you tuned in today as we commence year three uh, of our journey as the uh, only black-owned and black-operated talk radio station in this country, west of of the Mississippi, flagship in L.A., of course, heard across the nation. But we thank you, thank you, thank you for your support of our first two years. And here we here we go <laughs> into year three. Uh, hard to believe it. Uh, it's year three already. But we are off and running, uh, but only because you have supported us in these last couple of years. And I am deeply uh, and eternally grateful to all of you for supporting uh, this station. Uh, in this hour, our guest is Dr. Blair L.M. Kelly. We're talking one day after Juneteenth about black folk, specifically the roots of the black working class. And uh, uh, her book is out now. It's called Black Folk, The Roots of the Black Working Class. And I'm delighted to have Dr. Kelly uh, on this program. We were talking moments ago before news traffic and sports about the impact of segregation and discrimination on the black working class. And I wanted to advance our conversation, actually, to get back to what we were just starting to tee up uh, about black women uh, and about migration. Let me just start. uh, Let me break these two things up. Tell me about the ways in which uh, these migratory patterns, black people leaving the south and going into all kinds of cities up north, into New York, into Detroit, into Chicago, into Indianapolis and Cincinnati and all around. But this, th- these migratory patterns impacted the black working class in what ways, uh, uh, Dr. Kelly? Uh, so oftentimes these migratory routes that uh, black people took fleeing uh, the terrible things that they were experiencing in the South, the discrimination, violence oftentimes was a, a spur for people to leave the South. Um, they're taking the trains that are there, that are present, and they are following those train routes northward. So oftentimes um, it's interesting to see that those patterns help people recreate community. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, my family who come from the Carolinas end up in the Philadelphia area. I also have family from the eastern shore of Virginia and Maryland, and there's a train that goes directly into Philadelphia from there. So you see large communities of people from South Carolina, North Carolina, and the eastern shore in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and they really resupport one another. Sometimes they're relatives, sometimes they're fictive kin. Either way, they are there to provide a a cushion for an often hard journey and a jarring journey from a very rural place sometimes into a very urban place that's um, often inhospitable to that first generation with poor housing, um, bad conditions. Uh, My parents, my grandparents lived in a partitioned room in a larger apartment um, where they couldn't have kids, so my mother would hide under the bed um, mm-hmm. when the landlord came. Mm-hmm. And so those kinds of really difficult things, my, my grandmother was 19, my grandfather was 24 uh, when, they, when they made that journey. So young people making a hard journey and, and trying to make that transition to 
uh, urban life. Mm-hmm. Talk to me uh, about the role of black women in uh, in the black working class. How do you situate that narrative in your work, in your research? Well, I begin in the South. I begin with uh, laundresses, washerwomen, as they were called, women who took in laundry um, from white families, took it to their own homes, washed it in their backyards, and delivered it back clean, white, pressed, and fresh at the end of the week. And uh, Black women had a monopoly on that kind of work. They had done that work in enslavement. And then they immediately recognized that most white folks weren't going to wash their own clothes. Mm-hmm. It was arduous work well before washing machines. You had to boil water, make soap, um, keep it at a certain temperature, add different chemicals to make it crisp and clean, um, create your own starch. Irons were big pieces of iron with they wrap rags around the handle. So it was hot, hard, heavy work. Um, but they did it masterfully. And they noticed that if they got together, if they negotiated with one another about what they thought a good price was and set their own uh, terms, that they could be quite powerful. Um, They could avoid going into white people's houses where oftentimes the males of the household would target black women for sexual assault. They could stay home. They could care for their own households. They could raise their own children, which is in stark contrast to the experience of enslavement. And so, Washerwomen become a powerful force, one of the largest uh, sectors of employment for black women in the country, uh, so much so that you know black women are about 11% of the population in the United States, and yet 65% of the people doing laundry in the country as a whole at, at the turn of the century. Mm. And they were quite um, wise and powerful. They didn't make a lot of money, mm-hmm. uh, but their autonomy, their mobility, and their vision uh, made such a difference. I don't think Dr. King was referencing enslavement when he made the comment uh, on more than one occasion that there is dignity in all work. Uh, That's King. There is dignity in all work. I don't think MLK, again, was referring to enslavement when he made that comment. But but talk to me about the black working class, to your point now, about being laundresses and Pullman porters and and domestic maids and, and postal workers. Is it your is it your assessment that Dr. King was right when you, again when you talk about when you write about the black working class that there is in fact dignity in all work? There was dignity because we made it so. Mm-hmm. Um, we we imbued these positions, these humble positions, with um, with pride and with care, and we passed down you know those legacies over time. And so um, that's something that my my parents always said that you know. You have to honor and respect a person who labors. Mm -hmm. And it really was a a general thing that I I think people knew about. Um, You know, oftentimes when I meet um, people who are not black, they'll say, well, what do you do for a living? You know, right when they first meet me. But if you're in black spaces, no one's ever going to ask that question Mm -hmm. because what you do is not who you are. Mm -hmm. And that that dignity of, of self, you can be a leader in your uh, social organization, in your church, and and be a janitor. And, and that wouldn't matter mm-hmm. in Black spaces because there is a different sense of who you are is more important than what you do. But what you do is, is infused with that larger spirit that you could still be a leader, a visionary 
in whatever position you're taking on. Mm. I'm curious. I'm curious. Uh, very curious about the frame that you that you just created. Uh, so let, let me just let me just ask you uh, uh, forthrightly why you think it is that our good white brothers and sisters are so quick then to ask, "What do you do, Tavis? What do you do, Blair? What do you do?" <laughs> I think for them, it, it really might be that what you do is who you are, mm-hmm. and they're assessing that situation. Um, you know, they're. they're there's a much more judgmental calculus, I believe, within um, the broader American community about success, about the measures of success. Mm-hmm. But traditionally, because Black people haven't been allowed access to any of those measures for generations, until this generation, really, um, and, and still there are hindrances to it. So we haven't taken on the calculus of the world to measure worth. Mm-hmm. And I think um, that's one of the things people can learn from us. Mm-hmm. To your point, uh, again, uh, here now, I think one of the things that we don't put enough spotlight on, enough focus on, and your, your book, in fact, does this, is that, back to this point of, again, of, of there being dignity in all work, that our work, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure I believe this these days. i I, I got to think about this. I'm not sure I believe it in a contemporary sense. But there was a moment in this country where, for black folk, their their work mattered uh their their experiences mm. mattered to them to their community to your point whatever they were doing uh, they were doing something because they thought it mattered they thought there was dignity in that work and they thought that as a community we'd all be uplifted by them doing whatever it was that they were doing i'm not so sure we feel the same way these days that our work actually matters and there's all kind of evidence to suggest that i'm right about that people change jobs like they change in socks uh, because they don't they don't feel valued in the spaces in which they are working. So I don't know that black folk today in the working class feel like their effort actually matters in the way they did back in the day. But that's me. You're the expert. You wrote the book. So you tell me. Well, I do think, you know, we might want to complicate that a bit. Because okay, sure. if we if we think back to the covid moment. Mm hmm. And black people who were over over uh, represented in the ranks of what became termed essential workers. Sure. They, they kept the nation alive and going mm-hmm. in really important ways. So when we look at um, our nurses, our bus drivers, our CNAs who cared for our sick elderly, boy, they, they, they knew that there was something valuable about their work. Mm-hmm. And they risked their lives to do it. And, you know, this nation wasn't thankful enough and didn't notice enough about uh, the real sacrifice that people were making yeah. at that time period. And, and it's not just black workers, you know, all essential workers were undervalued at that time, but that, that ethic of care was still alive in those moments um, that kept, you know, some of us could be at home because others were willing to sacrifice us. Several of my church sisters, you know, said to me, well, you know, I never was off. There was no time during COVID when I had a day off. And so that that continuation of that spirit was that the kernel is alive there. But we, you know, we live in a different world where the pressures around wealth and consumerism and, you know, these narratives about black excellence that aren't about um, what my grandmother would have thought of as black excellence, but, you know, about conspicuous consumption. Um, If we could get back to an older version of excellence, I think that might be uh, service well. 
Oh, now I got you got me you got me you got me thinking now. There are a few things I want to unpack when we come forward to give you a chance to unpack. I want to come back to that very point right now about black excellence. Uh, I I concede um, uh, to to Dr. Kelly that uh, maybe she's right. Uh, in fact, she is right about the essential workers. Um, talking now about black folk, the black working class. So the black essential uh, working class or the essential black working class did take their work seriously during the pandemic. And, and I concede that they knew, had to know that their experiences, their work, their effort mattered. Um, so I'll concede the essential workers piece of that puzzle. I'm not so sure I'm ready to concede the rest of it. We'll talk about black excellence and a funny story uh, that I'll share about uh, two experiences I've had literally in the last week encountering black folk behind counters. Uh, we'll talk about that when we come forward on KBLA Talk 15. Continuing our conversation now with Dr. Blair L.M. Kelly about her new book, um, Black Folk, The Roots of the Black Working Class, a propitious conversation to be having a day after Juneteenth. Again, the book is called Black Folk, The Roots of the Black Working Class. We've been having a dynamic conversation in this hour about uh, the impact of the black working class on this country. I want to come uh, in a few moments to talking uh, more expressly about that, um, uh, how the black working class uh, has moved in ways and uh, <clears throat> and. Uh, uh, and I should say moved in ways and advanced um, this notion of democratizing America. We'll talk about that in a moment, uh, what it means for our labor to democratize the country. We'll talk about the relevance of black working class peoples in contemporary discourse and labor activism. We'll get to that. Before we do all that, though, we were talking a moment ago about about whether or not um, those of us who are part of the black working class uh, accept or believe these days that our work actually matters, that it matters to us, that it matters to the community, that it matters to the country. Uh, I was reading a piece, a couple of things, uh, Dr. Kelly, come to mind. I was reading a piece a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. um, some data, and I'm hoping to have a conversation about it on this program in the days to come. But I was reading some data recently about black people and how the overwhelming majority, the overwhelming majority of black folk in this country, frankly, hate their jobs. <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. I found the data mm -hmm. fascinating that the overwhelming majority of us don't like the jobs to which we go to every single day. That's a conversation under itself. We're going to spend an hour, uh, I think, in the not too distant future talking about that piece of the puzzle. But mm -hmm. in the last week, I've been in two different places. And um, I ain't going to call the names of where I was, the post office. <laughs> I was like, uh, you going to uh, tell the, us? The, the, yeah, the, the, <laughs> the post office and the DMV, Department of Motor Vehicles. So I, okay. I was I was at DMV last week, and I was at a post office last week. And had the occasion to get to the counter, uh, and uh, the persons behind the counter uh, were African Americans. And mm -hmm. in both of those conversations, I'm trying to handle my business at the DMV, trying to handle my business at the post office. In both of those instances, I was told by the person behind the counter, uh, Mr. Smiley, they don't pay me enough to care. Uh, they, they, they really don't pay me enough to care. I, I'm not, if I'm lying, I'm, if I'm lying, I'm flying. I heard that twice oh from two different Negroes in two different locations in the same week. One at the post office, one at the DMV. I'm trying to get my business out of They don't care. They don't pay me enough to care. And they flat out just, <laughs> just straight up said that to me. So when I said earlier, I will concede that the essential workers in the pandemic knew that their work mattered. Not so much for these two sisters I saw at DMV in the post office. They just don't think their work matters. They don't think that you know they're, they're paid enough to even care about things like that. 
Um, your, okay. your okay. thoughts, Dr. Kelly? Yeah. You know, I'm going to advocate for my sister. Okay, take it away. A little frust- Maybe they were frustrated that day. They had a little empathy <laughs> for that cause. Yeah. And if they lived in L.A. Yeah. And they work for those organizations. Maybe they don't make enough, mm-hmm. right? Because you live in one of the most expensive places on earth. Mm-hmm. And tell so me. maybe they don't make enough. <laughs> yeah, you're telling me. <laughs> so I, I think the wear and tear on our working class in places where it's impossible to live, where your commute would be tremendously long, where the schools would not be uh, what they should be for your children. Yeah, maybe they don't make enough. And, you know, Unfortunately, you know, you bear, you bore the consequences of that. Um, but we do really have to think on that human side uh, once again about the larger circumstances that black workers are facing. So, no, I'm not going I'm not going to beat my sisters up. Nope. I'm not. Not today. I, I'm not. Not today. <laughs> she said, nope, not today. I'm not going to beat them up either. But since we're talking to a whole lot of black folk, not exclusively, but a lot of black folk listed right about now, um, let's let's yeah. just let's just go there uh, because my, my my sense is that that wasn't the first time that either one of those sisters had used that phrase that they don't pay <laughs> me enough to care. I, I'm just I'm going out on a limb here, Doctor Kelly, but I don't think that was the first time they'd uttered those phrases. I want to connect that though uh, though to this data that I said uh, I was reading earlier about the fact that mm-hmm. many of us in the black working class today don't even like the work that we that we do they, we don't even like uh, the places the spaces in which we have to navigate um, every day what say you about that reality I think you know there's been an erosion um, over time of the kind of care that um, corporations and companies have given workers so when my dad was a young person you stayed on your job for a long time mm-hmm. because there was an infrastructure behind you. You know, it was a good job. You got benefits, you got nice insurance. Mm-hmm. I remember my mother paying a dollar for prescriptions and you know $2 for a doctor's visit because she was a union teacher. You know, there there was nice benefits mm-hmm. that people had at one point. Now you have a very hard time finding a space where you would have a pension, let alone a 401k or insurance. You have places that are you know, trying to game the system and, and give you as little as possible for what 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 you what you're doing. And so I think that the hollowing out of the ethics of our country have left the working class in circumstances that, that don't feel good, mm-hmm. where people are dissatisfied and they want they want more. You know, more is being put in front of us. There's um everything's more expensive, you know, the phones, the TVs, the homes, and yet you can't get there yeah. from these jobs. So, of course, there's dissatisfaction, but that's not really on the workers themselves. I think that's on the American people yeah. to think and rethink what people are owed for their labor. Yep. Um, I take that. I take that. In the two minutes I have left, <laughs> let me see Let me see if I can close with this as the exit question. Um, I want to weave these two things together. Uh, or let you weave them together for me in your brilliance. The, the relevance of the black working class in contemporary discourse and labor activism and the ways in which uh, over the, the span of history we have helped to democratize this country as a black working class. Weave that together in two minutes and I'll take your response. I mean, for me, when I think about those questions, I think about my my um, my permanent never been elected, but still the president of my heart, Stacey Abrams, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. A working class a person who grows up with working class parents who imbue in her a sense of community. And she shows the world that working black people in a state that we had counted out um, could elect a black senator. Mm -hmm. 
on an off election, right? You know, uh, an extra election where mm-hmm. there's no black president on the ballot, right? Mm-hmm. Boy, that's powerful. What a reminder. So next time we go to talk about democracy and what's possible, we better look to the working class because they are showing their strength and they're showing their concern. They are the most active, most engaged working class in this country politically. Yeah. Um, it's a powerful book. Um, and you can always tell, um, I've written what, 23, 24 books in my career. And <laughs> whenever you look at the back of a book and you see what we call blurbs, uh, pay attention to those, uh, because it gives you some sense of what other folk in the field think about the text written by said author. Uh, and in this, in this case, um, you have people like Robin D.G. Kelly, uh, here at UCLA, you have people like uh, Michael Eric Dyson, now at Vanderbilt, and others who are sounding off on the richness, on the brilliance of the research and the, uh, the, the work that Dr. Blair L.M. Kelly brings to this text. Her latest book is called, it's an acclaimed book already, it's called Black Folk, The Roots of the Black Working Class by Dr. Blair L.M. Kelly, who I've been honored to have had on this program talking about the black working class one day after Juneteenth. Dr. Kelly, thanks for your work and your witness. Good to have you on. We'll do it again somewhere down the road, I'm sure. Thank you so much for your time. My great honor. Thank you for your time. Hour three of Tabby Smiley will introduce you uh, to two uh, of our new hosts uh, coming your way as we commence year three today on KBLA Talk 15.